the theme that we have been drawing out from the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark so far is that Jesus is king. He was heralded as king from the very first verse of this book. He was heralded as king by John the Baptist who came to prepare the way before the king. He acted as king coming to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to say the kingdom is at hand because the king is here. Repent and believe the gospel. And last Sunday, we started to ask the question, what kind of a king is he? What kind of a king? That's really what we see being described here in Mark chapter 1. Last week, we focused on the authority of the king, that he is a sovereign king. He's the type of king that preaches with authority. He doesn't have to rely on what came before him, interpretations of the Old Testament law from the rabbis. Thank you, Ben. He preached with authority, as it said, because he was the king. He had the authority. It was his book. It was about him all along. This week, we are going to focus on another aspect of what this king is like. Yes, he is a sovereign king, and that will come even through again in this short 11 verses that Kevin read for us this morning. But there's another focus of this, um, uh, of this passage that I think will be very important for us to see. That he was not just a sovereign king, he was a servant king. That is the title of our message this morning, A Servant or The Servant King. Now, if you were king, what kind of king would you be? Tabitha and I were watching recently a documentary on the, um, the monarchy, the House of Windsor, the king or the, the, the royal line uh, in England today. And we were struck by the fact, and as if you've spent any time reading the history of the House of Windsor, how much corruption there has been how many really of the their lives have been marked by a real immorality or a real kind of distastefulness and that's not I'm not just picking on the house of Windsor I'm saying if you were to look at the history of kings the history of monarchies the history of presidents if you were to go back into the secret lives of many of our American presidents over the years, you would find incredible rot, moral rot and degeneration. Now, why is that? I think one of the biggest reasons that is, is because a king is the one who has authority. And when the king has authority, very often that authority is brought to bear for whose purposes and whose gain. The kings, that's why. When you have all of the world as your oyster, so to speak, when all of the world is in front of you, your own natural selfishness turns toward appropriating that, taking that for your gain, for your pleasure, for your purposes. And what comes alongside of that is just an incredible amount of brokenness, of moral degeneration. That was one of the reasons that in the Proverbs, you remember Proverbs 31, the, the, the writer of Proverbs, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, I, I, God, just give me two things. First, don't let me be rich. Now, how many people say that to God, really, truly, sincerely? God, please, I do not want to be rich. 
I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be comfortable. But those were wise words. Why? Because he says, lest I be full and deny you. Why do I need God? I'm rich. Why do I need God? I'm comfortable. The proverb writer says, no, don't let me do that. But do you know what he also says? But don't let me be poor, lest I take your name in vain and steal. An interesting thing. A king, because he is rich, because he is powerful, because he has authority, is tempted so supremely to take and to use it for his own pleasure and his own purposes. Like a man after God's own heart, David, seeing a beautiful woman in the neighborhood and saying, I want her. And a man after God's own heart committing adultery and committing murder because his own selfishness grabbed hold of his authority and misused it. This is the very natural way that people with power and influence and prestige and authority exercise it in their own carnal fleshliness. So how does Jesus as a king operate? What I want to see in just these three short stories that we see here in verses 29 to 39, Jesus exercises his kingly, sovereign authority not for his own benefit, not for his own purpose, but to be a servant. And in doing that, I want to encourage us today, those of you who have positions of your own authority or your own influence, this church, what our purpose is as a church, it's going to tie in very closely, I hope, to the life and the example of Jesus, who said, I did not come to be ministered to, I did not come to be served, but I came to minister. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Let's look at the first story together here, starting in verse 29 and going through verse 34. Again, three short vignettes, three short stories in all within a span of 24 hours. This was a jam-packed day for our Lord. Verse 29, and forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue. Forthwith means immediately. That's one of Mark's favorite words. Immediately, they come out of the synagogue and they entered into the house of Simon, that's Simon Peter, the disciple of Jesus, and Andrew with James and John. Now, where are they? If you were here last Sunday morning, you may remember that they were in Capernaum. Capernaum, a town, a fishing village at the north end of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. And as we talked about last week, that city, that ancient city has been excavated. And they have found what they believe to be the remains of a synagogue. It may not have been the exact one that Jesus was in. It may have been built on top of that. But very likely that was the place where this happened. And you could go there. If you went to modern day Israel, you could go there and you could see ancient Capernaum. So I want you to imagine it's Saturday. That's the Old Testament Sabbath, right? It's the Sabbath day. They go to their morning service. And I, I, I read that those morning services might end sometime around when hours end, sometime around noon. And so they leave, like we leave, and they go home. And Jesus does not live in Capernaum, but he goes to Simon, Peter, and Andrew's house. Now you say, why were Simon and Peter living together? Well, it's very interesting. In ancient day Capernaum, where they have done so much excavation today, they have found a house that is a lot bigger than the others. They've actually found a house that was plastered on the inside, and they didn't find clay pottery like you would in other houses that they excavated in Capernaum. They found lamps. 
oil lamps. And it was plastered, and on the plaster were, were writings. God is mentioned, and it's even said that Peter himself is mentioned. In fact, there is a writing from a 4th century Christian. This is what she says. She claims to have visited the home of Peter in Capernaum. Here's what she writes in her travelogue. In Capernaum is the home of the prince of the apostles, turned into a church, but with the original walls retained. Here the Lord healed a crippled man. You can actually visit, if you go to ancient Capernaum today where it's been excavated, you will find the house that is said to be, from ancient, ancient tradition, to be Simon Peter's house that was turned ultimately into a church. Now, do we know that for a fact? No, we don't know that for a fact. But what they've done in excavation suggests that may very well be the house that Jesus entered into and we read about here in verse 29. Pretty cool, huh? So in Capernaum, Jesus enters into this house. It's where Simon Peter lives. It's where Andrew lives. It's a larger gathering with a courtyard in the, or a larger building with a courtyard in the middle. And not only that, Simon's wife's mother is there. So that's Simon's mother-in-law. So Peter, yes, is living there with his mother-in-law. And now would be the perfect time for me to launch into a series of mother-in-law jokes But I'm not going to do that, one, because I don't want us to get distracted, and number two, because I know for a fact that my sainted mother-in-law listens to each of these sermons on recording. And I couldn't even suggest anything that would uh, be any different than the blessing I have to have a mother-in-law that doesn't tie into any of these mother-in-law jokes. Mom, Bert, I hope you're enjoying the sermon at this point. So what happens here? Simon is there, and his wife's Mother is there. By the way, this shows us that Simon Peter was married. Now you say, why is that important? Because in the Roman Catholic Church, they teach the unbiblical teaching that a priest, or in their idea, a pastor, cannot be married. He must be celibate. Now this is very strange. When they identify, the Roman Catholic Church identifies Peter as the first what? The first pope. Peter was married. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, we may, um, Paul um, intimates that Peter had a wife that he led about on his missionary travels. He says, can't I, couldn't I be authorized to lead about a wife just like Peter? Peter and his wife traveled together on missionary ventures. And this is just one uh, thing, not only for, our, for, not only for other churches, but for ourselves. We always need to be, uh, be applying our traditions to the word of God. And when they don't match the word of God, we should let them go. And in this case, we see that very clearly. Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever. Now, what what kind of fever was this? Some of you, if you've been sick recently, you've been laid up with a fever. This wasn't just any fever. Luke, who was a physician himself, tells us about this story. And he says it was a mega fever, literally in the Greek, a great fever. Fever, a really significant fever. Now, your body gets feverish when it's fighting off an infection, when it is um, trying to exercise its function to fight off some kind of disease or problem. And so clearly, um, Peter's mother-in-law is dealing with a significant sickness. And notice that she's laying down, and Anon, again, immediately, they tell him, Jesus, of her. Now, why would they tell Jesus? Well, because they just saw him cast out someone, cast out a demon out of someone from the morning service. So probably they say, hey, Jesus, can you do anything about this one? 
And notice Jesus. Jesus comes and takes her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she ministered to them. She served them. Served them how? She probably got up and helped make Sabbath lunch. And you say, well, why is this so important? Well, think again about the authority of Jesus. A woman who's laboring under a, a mega fever and he just raises her up by the hand and immediately the fever is gone and she needs no more recuperation. She is instantly healed. She doesn't need to take a nap for the rest of the day because she's still wiped out even though the fever left up. She gets up with immediate energy and says, okay, what can I do? Say, well, why is this important? Well, one, again, it demonstrates the authority of Jesus, the Messiah, over a sin-cursed world. He exercises authority over doctrine. He exercises authority over demons. He exercises authority over disease. He exercises his authority over the material world, like when he says to the winds and to the storm, peace, be still, silence, and it obeys. This is his authority. But what else do I see here? Notice who Jesus is healing. Notice who Jesus is serving. He is serving a mother-in-law who, frankly, other than getting up and maybe making Sabbath lunch, can do very little for him. Someone who he is serving in private, not in public. Now, we know of, this, of the idea of someone being a big benefactor, right? You maybe have heard of these billionaires who are agreeing to give up to half of their money in their lifetime or at their death. They are, are, are committed to, uh, to, to being a benefactor of certain causes. Now, it's not a bad thing, but do you notice that when billionaires write big checks, they like to make sure everyone knows? Do you notice that when people serve, they like other people to watch? And to notice, it's like Jesus said in Matthew 6, when people would go, the Pharisees would go to write a big check, if you will, to give a big charitable donation, to give alms. Do you know what they would do? They would stand on the corner of the street and it was like they would blow a trumpet. Why do you blow a trumpet? Hey, everyone, look over here. This is what I'm doing. Look at this wonderful thing I'm doing. Oh, I'm being very humble about it, of course. But nonetheless, you should take note and be, pay very careful attention to my, my generosity. Not Jesus. Jesus was willing to go into a private little house and take of his time and see someone who was sick and just raise her up just because he had the authority to, just because God had put her in his path. Now again, this is something that all of us should take note of because so much of our worldly lives are built around transactional living. A transaction. What is a transaction? A transaction is I give you something and you give me something. I go to the store, I pick something up, I go to the cash register, I pay you and you give me what I need. It's a transaction. And so much of the way that we naturally relate to people in service is that kind of transactionalism. I'm a lawyer. 
I, have, I am in a client service business. I need to provide services to clients. I serve them. Now, do you think that in my service, I'm more likely to focus my attention on the billion-dollar company that can pay all of our rates and give us work that's, that's, that's over and above what we could expect, or maybe to the small little company or individual who can't, doesn't have any chance of paying our rates? Very naturally, I'm going to be more transactional. That's just how by nature we are. If you're a waiter, if you're a server at a restaurant, are you more likely to give the best service to the person who is dressed very nicely and appears very wealthy and might give you a great tip, or to the homeless guy who came in who has barely enough to cover his bill? It's very natural to be reciprocal. It's very natural to have a transactional view of how we serve other people, but not Jesus. Jesus served whoever was in front of him, whoever God placed on his path. Do you remember the story that Jesus told when, um, uh, uh, when he was confronted with a question? Master, Luke chapter 10, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? He says, well, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He knew the two great commandments in the law. Jesus said, okay, go and do it. And the man said, well, wait a second. He was trying to justify himself. He said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, I've got a story for you. There was a man who was taking a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, a place where there were thieves along the wayside, and those thieves got him. They beat him up, they stripped him, they wounded him, they battered him, and they left him for dead by the side of the road. And going down that same path was a priest, one of the religious folk. And the Bible says, and Jesus in this story says, that priest saw him and just immediately, if you will, crossed the street and went right beyond him, went right past him, didn't even stop. Then a Levite came. A Levite came and actually stopped and looked at him. He considered him. He at least stopped. But then he said, no, I got stuff to do or whatever the reason was, and he kept on going. And then Jesus said a Samaritan came by. A Samaritan was a mixed race person someone who has had some Jewish ethnicity and some pagan ethnicity. They were literally what we would call, in a, in a derogatory term, a half-breed. They were hated by the Jews. The Samaritans hated the Jews, and the, Samaritans hated, uh, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They just didn't like each other. So this person stops and sees a Jew who would naturally be his enemy, and what does he do? He picks him up. He gives him medicine, he puts him on his own animal, he takes him to an inn, a place where he could stay, pays two days wages, and says, you take care of him, and if it costs any more, I'll pay you when I come by here again. And Jesus said, which one do you think was the neighbor to him that was wounded? And the man said, well, obviously the Samaritan. Do you know what Jesus said? You do, you go and do likewise. You do the same thing. You do the same thing. In other words, here's what he's saying. Christian, you're different. Go look at the Sermon on the Mount. He said, why do we love our enemies? He said, because even the pagans, even the publicans, even the open sinners, they know to love their family. They know to love their friends. Even the worst criminals on the streets, they know to be kind to the people who are kind to them. Jesus said, you're different. You be like your father in heaven. Be perfect like him. Love your enemies. Wow. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is whoever God brings into your path. 
And I just want to say to all of us today, if we are going to be Christ-like in our service, we're not going to tailor our service to those who can pay us back, to those who can reciprocate to us. We will serve whoever God brings into our path. Whoever God, by his spirit, says that one, our ears will be open. This is why James says in James chapter 1, what is pure and undefiled religion? It is to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. Why? In large part because they can't pay you back. Because at least in that day, those people were the ones who were economically destitute. They were the ones who pure and undefiled religion visits. How did this king serve? Not those who would pay him back. He served whoever was in his path, who God called him to bring. Secondly, so first of all, I want us to look at the scope of this service. But secondly, I want us to look at the sacrifice of this service. Let's look at the next little story here, starting in verse number 32. Verse number 32 says, and at even, at evening, when the sun did set, so just imagine the sun setting on this day, they brought unto him all that were diseased, not just Simon's wife's mother, all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils, just like that man in the synagogue. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick and of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils, did not permit the devils to speak, because they knew him. So let's picture this scene together. It's still the Sabbath, right? Or it's just the Sabbath has just ended. What is the Jewish Sabbath? From Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So on Sabbath morning, Jesus is in synagogue. He's in the church, if you will, the gathering place. He comes, he casts out a a demon out of a man and teaches and preaches there. And then he goes for Sabbath lunch and for the afternoon to Simon Peter and Andrew's house. He heals this woman that's there. Perhaps he taught at that house in this private setting in the afternoon. We don't know, but then it's evening and the sun goes down. Now I can tell you, When I'm done on a Sunday evening with preaching twice, a lot of times I just want to go and vegetate. Because preaching takes a lot of mental focus and a lot of mental activity. And by the end of the day, I'm just, I'm just kind of done. I'm just kind of tired. And so I'm really identifying with Jesus here. He is here. It's dark. He's had an exhausting day. And I'm sure Jesus in his body is just saying, okay, good. Now it's time to rest. It's time to take a break. And then Simon Peter and Andrew come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, there are people outside. Who? Well, actually, the whole city is here. The whole city is gathered at the door. Oh, what do they want? Well, they've got a lot of people who are really sick, and there's some people who appear to be, to be possessed with demons. Now, what would you do at that point? I might say, well, don't open the door. Tell them I'm sleeping. It's dark. Now, why did they come when it was dark? Does anyone know? One of the things that Jesus got into trouble about more than anything else, do you know what it was? Healing people on the Sabbath day. We're actually going to see that in Mark chapter 3 in just another another chapter and a half. Why? Because the Pharisees taught you can't get healed on the Sabbath day. That's work. 
That's work to get, and we rest on the Sabbath. And so these people weren't going to come to Jesus during the day. They weren't going to come in the afternoon when he was there at peace. They had to wait until it was dark, and then they came, and then they lined up. Well, do you know what I would have been tempted to say? Sorry. Why didn't you come in the afternoon? I was already in the healing business then. I could have helped you then. I'm sorry. The door is closed. My bed is beckoning to me. It's time to go to bed. What did Jesus do? He came out and he started healing them all. All. Diseases? Gone. Demons? Cast out. How long did he spend there? I have no idea, but the whole city was at his door, so it must have taken a little while. And he just wiped out sickness and disease in that small fishing community. Now, what does this tell me about what this king was like? This king came to serve whoever God brought in front of him. That was one point. But here's another. This king came to serve people on their timeline, not his. Do you see that? He came to serve people on their timeline when they lined up, not his timeline. You say, why is this so important? Have you ever been a secretary? Have you ever been a person, a waiter, a server? What do you do? Your job is to run on someone else's schedule. You help keep their schedule. Your job is to make sure they're moving along on schedule. Imagine for a moment... If the king were to go to his secretary and say, I want to make sure I'm running on your schedule, how can I help you today? You'd say, well, this is all backwards. This doesn't make any sense. But that's what this king did. This king operated on other people's timelines, not his. Now, this is one of the reasons, I think, that our moms are such unbelievable examples to us of service. Because moms know what it is day by day to operate their lives on someone else's time frame, on someone else's timeline, not theirs. The baby starts crying in the middle of the night because she's teething. And mom says, I'm getting up. I don't care that I'm exhausted. I don't care that I'm feeling sick myself. I don't care. Someone else requires my care. And moms, you are examples to us of exactly that kind of humble service, a Christ-like sacrifice. Dads, we probably need to do a lot better job at that. I'm so grateful for a wife who in so many ways has taught me what it looks like to be a servant of other people. It, is, it's, it has been such a challenge and a conviction and an encouragement to me. We need this in our homes, in our lives, we need to recognize that if we're going to be humbly serving God and humbly serving others, it might not look convenient at all times. It might look really inconvenient at times. And yet God has called me to exercise this kind of Christ-like service. I would just put it this way. Your practice of serving others can't run on a schedule because other people's needs don't run on a schedule. And unless I am willing to set aside my schedule, set aside my desires and my practices and my priorities and serve others on their timeline, I won't be, uh, I won't be uh, exemplifying the Christ-like service that this king 
came to offer. So notice first the scope of his service. It was anyone who came, who God brought in front of him. Secondly, it was the sacrifice of his service, even when it was inconvenient, even when he was on someone else's timeline. But notice thirdly, the source of his service. And look with me now at verse 35 in our Bibles, the third of these three stories. And in the morning, the next morning, Sunday morning, right? In the morning, rising up a great while before day. Now what that means is literally a great while before it turned light. When it's pitch black. Not right at dawn. Before dawn. Before it gets light. When it's dark. He went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon, that's Peter, and they that were with him followed after him. So just imagine the scene. Jesus has been up late into the night healing people after a full day already. He finally goes to bed and he wakes up way before it's light when it's still dark and he goes out into a wilderness. He just goes out where no one is. And then Peter and Andrew wake up and they say, well, where's Jesus? And well, he's not there. He wasn't where he was sleeping. And so what do they do? Well, where's Jesus? And so they go searching for him. And ultimately, probably some period of time after he had already been praying and spending time with God, perhaps a number of hours, they found him. Verse 37, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. Everyone's looking for you. And he said unto them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. You say, what is the importance of this story? Notice something about Jesus. Jesus was extremely busy. He had all the, 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 um, all the city lining up at his door. What did he do the next morning? He got up early to go spend time with God. Now, why is this so important? It's this. When you are given to service, which many of you are, what happens when you get busy? What tends to go when you get busy? I know what tends to go when I get busy. My quiet time with God. The amount of my Bible reading or prayer or the habits, the spiritual disciplines that I have formed, those are the ones that I am tempted to slide on. I'm tired. I got to bed late last night. I was really busy. I've got so much ahead of me today. What did Jesus do? Busyness did not distract him from fellowship with God. It drove him to fellowship with God. It said, I'm going to prioritize it even more, even if I have to get up while it's still dark. Now you say, why is this so important? Why is this so critical? I just want to make this simple point. When you get busy, you need to focus more on spending time with God, not less. I was just texting with someone this week. When when am I going to see you again? When am I going to see you? Oh, it's just so busy. Things are, are just so challenging right now. And it's like I want to say, no, that's more reason to be in church. 
When you get busy, you shouldn't say, okay, well, I guess that I don't have time for church. You should say, I'm going to double my focus at being in church today because I need fellowship with God's people today. I need to hear the word of God preached today. Am I busy today? I need to um, prioritize more on spending time with God in prayer and getting in communion with him. Why? Because it's our busyness that threatens to blind our eyes to what's most important in any event. Several years ago, Tabitha and I just committed, we knew we needed to put in place a regular time for us to have a date night. And we, we call it Tab Tuesday. And just if, I can't say that every single Tuesday we have it, but I can tell you that the great, great consistency of our lives is to have a date night of some kind on Tuesday. And why is that so important? When we get busy, that's when I'm tempted to say, I don't need that as much. But why is it only more important that I do? Because when I, when I get busy, when Tabitha gets busy, who do we lose focus on? Each other. And what's more important than the busyness that I'm doing and I'm getting consumed with? My relationship with my wife. And so when I start getting busy on everything else, I need more to focus on her because naturally that's what I would lose. And that's what's central. That's what's important. Now how much more is your important, important is your relationship with God? When your time does not seem to allow for it, Jesus showed us that that's the time that we need to prioritize more spending time alone with God when we're busy so that we're reordering our priorities, so we're keeping our eye on the ball, so we're not losing focus on what is most important. Do you know this is true for you when you're feeling really stressed and feeling really busy? Do you know one of the most biggest reasons you and I feel stressed? Because we don't think we have enough time to do all the tasks we have. The tasks just start mounting up on our mental checklist and we say, I, I can't think about it anymore. It, there's just too much. Do you know a really great way to think, to deal with stress? Is just simply to stop and discipline your mind to say what is most important right now and what is least important right now. And once you have that mental discipline to say this is most important right now, do that and stop thinking about what is least important right now. And you know what will very likely happen? You'll be less stressed because you have brought that mental discipline to what is most important. And when you and I prioritize our time with God as most important, even in our busyness, that's when we will get our focus back in the right place. Busyness didn't distract him from fellowship with God. It drove him to it. But not only that, busyness not only didn't distract him from fellowship with God, it didn't distract him from the purpose of God for his life. You say, where do you get that? Well, what did the disciples, what did Peter come to him? They said, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. In other words, why don't you go minister to them some more? And what did Jesus say? No, I'm not gonna go talk to them. I'm done here for now. What am I gonna do? Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. You say, what is the relevance of this? Do you know what happens when I get busy? When I get busy, I start focusing on exactly only what is in front of me. And that's very natural for us. We start focusing on serving what's right in front of us. But do you know what we can get lost on? What is most important for God's purpose? Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha? 
Mary and Martha are two sisters. They're serving Jesus. They're greeting. They're bringing Jesus into their house. And what's Martha doing? Martha's running around serving. That's a good thing. She was serving. She was cooking. She was getting ready for dinner. And what's Mary doing? Mary is sitting down right at Jesus' feet and listening to him talk. Now, I don't know if you're a Martha naturally, but do you know what, you, what, what I would get? I'd get a little irritated. Mary, you're being lazy. I'm doing all the work, and you're sitting down there, and you're just relaxing, and you're taking it easy. Don't you see we've got a ton of work to do? And that's exactly what Martha did. She went to Jesus and said, tell Martha to start serving too. I probably would have done the same thing. What did Jesus say? He said, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things. You're stressed. You've got so many tasks on your mental checklist. But one thing is needful. One thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part, the one thing that is necessary, which shall not be taken away from her. What is actually necessary is not cooking. It's not doing all this service, even for Jesus. What is necessary is learning from Jesus, is communing with Jesus, is spending time with Jesus. And, and, and what Jesus said to Mary is, Mary, you can sit right there because you've chosen what is necessary. Now, does that mean we shouldn't serve other people? Of course not. Here's what it means. It means that God wants to show you what's most important for you. And for what was most important for Jesus at that time was not to go back to Capernaum. It was to go to the next town and keep on preaching. And Jesus didn't get tunnel vision on his busyness to say, okay, I'm giving it all here. He said, God, what's next? How could he do that? Because he'd just been spending time with God. He'd just been getting his focus in the right place. He was getting his priorities calibrated again to whatever God wanted. And that's why he could say with such confidence, nope, we're done in Capernaum. Let's go, guys. We're going to the next towns. His priority ultimately was bringing about the kingdom of God. Now, this is a profound thing for us personally. It's a profound thing, friends, for you to be dedicated to the service of whoever God brings in your path, even when it's inconvenient, but never letting that focus on service distract you from your communion and your fellowship with God, which will show you who he wants you to serve and in what priority. But it also means something for us as a church. Do you know there are two things centrally that I hope our church is known for? There are so many things that churches in our day can be known for. What two things are critical? Well, notice what Jesus did. In verse 34, or sorry, in verse 39, he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. What is our job? What is our priority? It's two things. It's to advance the kingdom of God and it's to oppose the kingdom of Satan. It's to advance the kingdom of God and it's to oppose the kingdom of Satan. And how do we do that? We do that by preaching and living the gospel of the kingdom. We are utterly unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't serve people and ignore the, their eternal spiritual need. We proclaim the kingdom clearly and boldly and consistently no matter who's watching. That's what our church needs to be known for. And how do we advance the kingdom of God? By doing what Jesus did, by serving whoever God 
brings across our path. Do you know what I want this church to be known for above all things? We preach and live the gospel of the kingdom clearly and consistently. And secondly, we serve other people, whoever God brings across our path. And do you know if we don't do those two things, God can take care of the rest. We don't need to be known for our preaching. We don't need to, or for eloquence. We don't need to be known for our programs and activities. We don't need to be known for our size. We need to be known for our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and our loving sacrifice of service to this community and to one another in the body of Christ. That's how we're gonna be like Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to advance the kingdom of God when we live out God's priority through us to perform his loving service for others. Friends, what kind of a king do we see? A king who has all authority and the one who exercises that authority to anyone in his path and on their timelines, no matter how inconvenient, not on his My challenge to all of us this week is go and be Christ-like in how we serve those in our path. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for this example that he shows us of a life that is committed to serving others. Father, we need your wisdom on this. We have perhaps a spouse to serve. We have perhaps children to serve. We have family members to serve. We have church members to serve. We have a community to serve. And sometimes it can seem overwhelming. It seems like those duties conflict. And yet, Father, when we are living in communion with you, when we are prioritizing fellowship with you, your spirit will direct us on who you want us to serve and how. And so, Father, let us not lose our focus. Let us not lose our priority. Let us, by our communion and our quiet time with you, let us be empowered and energized and directed to live lives of service like you want us to. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and just allow the spirit of God in this time of quiet to speak to our hearts.